Welcome to the EFCA West podcast. I'm Tim Jacobs, District Superintendent of EFCA West. And today we are going to talk about preaching and not just preaching, but preaching effectively, preaching powerfully, preaching in a way that people remember the stuff that you are trying to say, and it actually changes their lives. You know, if you've been preaching for any period of time, you're a senior pastor, you're a teaching pastor, student ministry pastor, you know, whatever, you perhaps took some seminary classes a while back or, you know, in college, and you read a few books, and then you were just off and running. And maybe it's been many, many years since you actually sat down and took stock and said, you know, how good of a preacher really am I? Have I been really thinking about or practicing working on my craft? Because this is an amazing art form. And those of us in the Evangelical Free Church of America, and we kind of pride ourselves on being people who communicate with clarity and with, uh, with passion the Word of God. And so the other thing that's really exciting to me about this conversation today is that part of my excitement about being the district superintendent is helping us realize the resources that we have in the EFCA family. Because a lot of people don't know, and maybe you're just starting out, maybe you're listening to this podcast because you're new at preaching and you're like, hey, I could take a class, but I'm not there yet and I found this thing and I just wanna like get some basics or maybe even get some tips on how I can become better, especially in the age and environment that we're living in now. And so, Again, with the great resources that we have, one of them is Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, uh, in Illinois there, and it's fantastic. It's a fantastic institution, and what, but what makes it fantastic are the people who teach there and who have given their lives to be able to train men and women on how to be godly and effective and powerful communicators and leaders in the church and outside in the world and everywhere else. And so one of those is Dr. Lucas O'Neill, and he is going to be our guest today. And his official title is the Clinical Associate Professor of Homiletics. And that is a really cool title. There's probably like five people in America that can actually say that they have that title. So, hey, Dr. O'Neill, man, thanks for being with me today. Hey, Tim, thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure. You recently wrote a book, came out um, a couple years ago, Preaching to be Heard, Delivering Sermons that Command Attention. I want everyone listening to this podcast to go out and get your book and to read it, to give it to people that they're training, their preaching teams, those that they're encouraging to kind of follow after them and to read it for themselves. Why did you write this book, Preaching to be Heard, Delivering Sermons that Command Attention? Yeah, good question. Uh, there's so many preaching books out there, uh, and I certainly didn't want to just put something out there and just one more book on a shelf, right? Uh, but I, I think in my experience, there you have your preachers that want to be exegetically faithful. They want to be expositional. They want to be faithful to the word. Uh, and they think that the faithful thing to do is just sort of read a verse, explain it, read a verse, explain it. And they're not thinking in terms of what actually makes a good sermon uh, listenable. Um, the rhetorical side of things, right? And then you've got preachers maybe on the other end of a spectrum who are so concerned with gaining attention making it listenable 
that they think that they have to almost abandon the text to do that. Like they'll, they'll mention a verse and then they'll just sort of launch into their talking points. And, you know, lo and behold, the listeners are like, what happened to the verse? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I wanted to try to put something out there that, that says, look, we need to put the word of God first. That that is the priority. We need to be explaining the word of God. Otherwise, it's not a sermon. But we can do that in a way that does capture attention, that does allow the people in front of you to understand why they need to listen to this. We can be more engaging as expositors of God's word. So that's why I wanted to get this out there. And, you know, I mean, obviously we're this is being recorded and hopefully people will listen to this, you know, years later, because I think there's a lot of timelessness in what we're going to talk about today. But we're obviously in a in a season that we've never been in before quite like this, where I mean, and for me, I just last Sunday, I just preached in front of a in an empty auditorium in front of a camera as I was guest preaching for one of our, the churches in our district. And right. it's it's just a new it's a new day. It's a new environment. But I look at it and go, you know, preaching was was hard enough to, you know, at least to be good at it before the coronavirus hit. I mean, is it harder to preach effectively now than you think at any other time in history? Uh, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Uh, where I would say yes would be uh, if you are especially an experienced preacher, you're used to uh, incorporating what you're seeing in front of you into your delivery. So if you're, let's say you're extrapolating on one of your points and you see furrowed brows, people confused, looking at the Bible, looking at you, looking back at the Bible, they're lost. You lost them somehow. That's totally gone when you're looking at the camera. You you don't see verbal, you don't, you don't see physical feedback. Mm. You don't see body language and you don't hear anything like my church. They're not the most vocal in terms of feedback. Like some churches, you know, they're amening and there's, you know, a lot of verbal feedback for preachers. But but my church, there's some of that. And I didn't realize how much of it I actually had until we went, we went to this like a Zoom call format. And even though Zoom allows you to see people in there, you can't look at them because then you're not looking at the camera. You have to have your eyes trained on the green dot so that they feel you're looking at them. And so I think one of the biggest challenges is the preacher is stripped of all of that feedback and you're just looking at a lens or you're just, you know, you're looking at a green dot and you're unable to sort of gauge how they're receiving what you're putting down, which I think uh, for me, I felt like it's pretty crippling, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I, that's one of the main challenges I think. And I'm sure you experience that as you're looking at an empty auditorium. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, you tell a joke and you're like, I think it's funny. Exactly. <laughs> it's did they laugh? Was it, did they get that? I have no idea. <laughs> it's funny to me, you know. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Humor is really difficult uh, without the live listeners right in front of you. Well, yeah. 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 So and on the one hand, it's harder. But then you said, you know, on the other hand, it's not. So why would you say that? Yeah. On the other hand, it's not because... Uh, you know, we hear a lot about, look, people have smartphones and apps and, you know, after Facebook came like Twitter, right, with the limited characters. And then nobody wants to write even that many characters anymore. They just want to take pictures, right, Instagram. Then Snapchat came out where the picture doesn't last for longer than so many seconds. It's like everything gets shorter 
quicker. You know, TikTok is a big thing now. And, uh, you know, my daughter was just telling me the other day, it's like if a video, even if a TikTok is longer, if it doesn't capture her attention, like within two seconds, she just skips to the next TikTok, you know? And so we feel like there's this constant blitz of information, shortened attention spans. But when you read homiletic texts, uh, when you read uh, public speaking texts from many, many years ago, this has always been a problem. You know, uh, Clyde, Clyde Reed wrote The Empty Pulpit in the 60s, and he was talking about how boring the preaching is then, right? Harry Emerson Fosdick wrote that famous article, What's the Matter with Preaching?, where he talks about just how utterly boring preaching has become. He wrote that in the 20s. I mean, it, they, 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 what were they competing against? There were no phones. There, <laughs> there's no Internet. You know, there's no apps. Um uh, when I read Scott Manich's, uh, uh, another Trinity prof, uh, Scott Manich wrote Calvin's Company of Pastors. And, you know, back then uh, in, in Geneva, uh, you know, you see evidence of the fact that Calvin would get up there and preach. And the people are talking uh, in their own little groups. They're arguing. They're coughing. They're sneezing. There's kids running around. There's animals outside in the background. And he has no mic. Right. He's got no amplification system. And so I think we sometimes uh, think too much of what we're facing today rather than realizing sermons have always been uh, it's always been difficult to capture people's attention. It's always been difficult to hold their attention just because of the nature of preaching and Rather than seeing it as competing with technology, I think it's competing against your own boringness as a preacher and try to raise your level, raise your game, so to speak, in terms of being a little more captivating, being more engaging, uh, learn how to say things a little more captivatingly and things like that, rather than, you know, shortening the sermon or, you know, (laughs) turn your sermon into a TikTok or something. I mean, we have to draw a line, right? So I think that's there, there's a timelessness to the challenge. Uh, even though there are new things about it now, there's a timeless aspect to the challenge where people are always going to be disengaged if the preacher's not making an effort to be engaging. That makes sense. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, unless we forget, uh, Paul was preaching in the book of Acts and some guy fell asleep and fell out of a third story window or something right right, and died and he had to pray to get him to come back to life and it's like if if your preaching has not caused anyone to be so bored that they fell asleep and it says he went on and on right i mean it's not a very respectful statement he preached he talked on and on the guy falls asleep falls to his death I, i don't know anybody that's ever had that happen that's right and so you know the answer is not Paul's got to preach shorter sermons, Um, but but the answer at the same time, the answer is not uh, if they fall asleep, who cares? I'm still Paul. Like I I still think Paul talks about the fact that he does what he can to persuade men. Uh, When he talks about preaching the power of the spirit and not in persuasive words, that doesn't mean that he doesn't use persuasive words. It just means that that's not where his power is coming from. And one of the ways we know that is when you read his letter, you see how persuasive it is. He's making an argument. He cites the Old Testament, you know, et cetera. So he, he uses 
the things he's got illustrations in there. Don't muzzle the ox. I mean, so uh, he's got application. The application comes after his foundation of of the, the, the theological section earlier on in the epistle. So obviously he's not just writing randomly, right? He's writing strategically. And so he doesn't mean that we don't persuade at all. He just means our job isn't to persuade people. It's the Spirit's job, and we need to come in that mode. But we still need to think about what it takes to stand up there and engage the listeners in front of us. Yeah. So Lynn, let me ask you, that. well, you, you write this in your book, you say, because you, you, you really kind of play both sides on it in a good way. And this, because well, on the one hand, you say, hey, look, you know, you may be attracting, in fact, you write, your preaching may be drawing a lot of people, but are they being fed well? It's easy to master the art of drawing an audience. If we give them something pleasantly palatable, we can fill empty seats. But if we don't supply nutritious meals, it is the people who are left empty. And and that's that that statement, because you're you're a younger guy on the on the spectrum of preaching professors. And I, I think the thought would be, well, the younger guys, you know, they just would rather, you know, think of it more technologically, like you said, shorten it and make sure that you really hold people's attention. But you say, no, it, it, you got to have the nutrition there. You've got to have the substance there. That's right. Yeah. And so, again, you know, the, there is a temptation to uh, approach the passage. Here's one issue. You approach the passage. And rather than asking the question, you're in your study, you're preparing your sermon, rather than asking, and it might be subtle, but in your heart of hearts, you might be asking, instead of what does this passage say, you're asking, how can I preach this? Mm. Or what, what, what can I find here that preaches? Ooh, that nugget, that really preaches. And it might be a sub-sub point in the text. It might not even be a point that the author is making, but you know if you make a sermon based on that, that's going to rock that's going to gain attention. That's going to be relevant. And so now you start crafting your sermon based on that, but you left the actual agenda of the text in the back, you know, you left that behind. And I think we, we need to make sure that we understand what God is actually saying in a passage is much more powerful, much more pertinent, and much more important than anything I can try to make it say. So we, we have to make sure we stay in that mode. Yeah, and that, I mean, and strangely enough, I mean, that requires a certain element of faith, right? I mean, you have to say, okay, I, I yeah. have, it's like the bird in the hand as opposed, you know, like I got this bird in the hand, but there's two in the bush, right? There's like, I can get more if I dig it out, if I take the time, right? That's, that's right. That's right. So every every scripture is profitable, right? And and we... It, that's either correct or it's incorrect. Well, Paul says all scripture is God breathed. Why is it inspired by God? It's inspired by God to yield a prophet to the believer, right? And that prophet is that the believer is equipped for every good work. So, so that's all of scripture. That's the chapters in Leviticus that you're tempted to skip, you know, the obscure verses and, and you know, numbers that we're tempted to not ever preach. But Paul's telling Timothy, hey, it's all profitable. So our mode is one of discovery to say, I may not find why this is narrative, this historical narrative, let's say, is profitable. But that's my problem. That's not the Bible's problem. I need to sit here and do the work to find out what profit this passage yields. Once I get that, preach that. If we don't do that, we'll always just go to our favorite verses 
and the verses that we think will preach yeah. rather than allowing God's word to do its thing. Yeah. So, and, you know, and honestly, like when I look at EFCA churches, um, I think that what we don't struggle necessarily with the, um, that part of it as much. I think, I think a lot of guys are like, Hey, let's be faithful to the text. Mm-hmm. But I think what we struggle with more is our ability to really be engaging. So let's talk about that a little bit. How do we, yeah. how do we keep, I mean, how, first of all, why are sermons so boring anyway? I mean, they shouldn't be. Why are they boring? And what can we do about it? Yeah. So there, there's a lot there, right? And, and, I, I try, even the book, I try to keep it as brief as possible. You know, I didn't want to try to solve every kind of problem. But uh, one of the things is that I think we, so some preachers, they're just not even il- interested in illustrations, applications, or anything, right? They're just like, let me just do, uh, you know, like I said, read the verse, explain it, read the verse. You're sort of a running commentary, and that's kind of the faithful thing to do. But I think other guys, they realize, hey, I need it. I need to be engaging. They don't know how to use these tools. So they just kind of think every few minutes as their attention is waning, I need to drop in something spicy here, an anecdote, a story, an illustration, a joke, a prop, uh, a slide, you know, et cetera. Um, and that, that punctuates your sermon with points of attention. But, but those, as soon as the illustration is over, that was a really engaging story, right? But as soon as it's over, I'm not engaged anymore because you didn't engage me with the text, mm. right? You, as a preacher, assume that the text is boring, and you know that every few minutes you got to give me something because everything else is boring, right? And so we just kind of drop in illustrations that they're not random, but they don't quite illustrate the main thing that the author's going on about. It's just something that happened to you this week, and you try to fit it in because you know it's going to capture some attention. But it does, but only for the moment. So um, William Hoffman uh, wrote a book called Public Speaking for Businessmen, and he talked about involuntary attention versus voluntary attention. Involuntary attention is easy. You know, if I stand up there in the pulpit and I just start yelling really loud, you know, everyone's going to look up, Right. It's involuntary. If if we hit the lights and then put them back on, everyone's going to wonder what's going on. That it's easy to catch involuntary attention. So something that's surprisingly funny, uh, a, a short story, those tend to just get people's attention for a minute. But it's involuntary. You want to aim for converting their involuntary interest to voluntary interest, and to do that, you've got to convince them we're going to address. A need. We're going to address a subject that you must hear the answer to. And once you convince them that they need to hear this, you tell them this passage we're going to look at today addresses that. This, this passage today, we're ill-equipped in some way. This passage is going to equip us for this particular issue. If you convince them that they need this, then you you can preach a sermon with no illustrations, no jokes, no, you know, newspaper clippings. Not that those things are bad. It's just that they're not looking for funny stories. They're looking for the answer to the problem that you presented, and they want to hear how the text is going to do that. And so I think that difference 
versus voluntary and involuntary attention. I think that is one of the things that, that preachers tend to miss. And by the way, he wrote that in 1923. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, so let's, then I want to get into then what does that look like then? I mean, because one of the, I think one of the major takeaways of your book is the, uh, the role of tension in the sermon. So I think that's one of the ways forward. But but let's talk about tension. Let's talk and let's talk about how do we equip ourselves to just be better at this whole idea of moving people from involuntary to voluntary attention. That's right. So first you gain it, and then you've got to keep it, right? So I think what what you do in your study is you discover the singular thrust of the text. Now, that's debatable. Some people say, you know, a passage has any number of meanings. But, you know, I think of Ke- Kevin Van Hooser, another test prop. <laughs> you know, his book, Is There Meaning in the Text? Yeah, if there is meaning in the text, which we hold to, which we believe, then the, a passage doesn't just say any number of things, right? The, the author is getting at something in particular. Now, it can be layered. It can be complex. It can have many kind of pieces to it. But there's, there's, if you're looking at a unit of thought, that means that the thoughts in the text are united around one main idea. So you can think of like Hatton Robinson's book, uh, Biblical Preaching, where he talks about big idea preaching. If you've ever heard of big idea preaching, he kind of is the, like the grandfather of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I hold to that because I think if this passage is saying something that I don't want to say anything, I want to say what I want to get at in my sermon what the passage is getting at. And here's why that's important, Tim. That's important because... That is going to be what you convince the, you try to convince the listener is the, the problem and solution of the passage. So if you think of a thesis, if this chunk of scripture is saying something, it's proposing something, there's a hypothesis there or a thesis there, that means it's talking about a topic and then giving us something about it, telling us to do something about it or telling us how to think about that particular thing or telling us what the solution is. And there's where you'll find the tension. It's in the text. You don't have to invent the tension. You don't have to concoct it. You discover the tension in the passage so that we're approaching the passage ill-equipped. Again, I'm going back to 2, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The purpose for the inspiration of Scripture is to equip us for good work. That means before I had that Scripture, I was ill-equipped for that work. So there's a deficit, and this Scripture is going to put me in the prophet line right so that's movement there's movement so you you what i do is i begin my sermon my introduction it's helping is to help them understand why we need the text we're going to turn to i'm trying to get them to go as soon as i announce the text okay we're going to be in luke 12 whatever i want them to go wow luke 12 is going to address that luke 12 is going to solve that it's going to equip me for that yes and then it's not going to be a you know, it's not like I'm baiting and switching, but the text is actually going to do that because my introduction is based on that work that I did in the passage, right? So that's where tension starts. They start. It starts in the introduction where they realize, okay, we're not just going to do church here. There's actually something that we're going to address. And I didn't pluck it from the internet, and I didn't get it from my Facebook feed. I got it from the text. The text is telling us we need this. And God promises he's going to equip us for it. So there's where tension starts in the beginning. So really it's like a deficit. You know, like, like you mentioned, yeah. there's, a, there's a deficit that that is, um, 
that is there that you have to create that or at least point that out for the, how the text draws that out. And you can use these other kind of tools, these illustrations to kind of build your case, but, but, the, but the deficit um, ultimately starts with what you have found in the text. That's correct. And so, it, again, I like how you corrected yourself because it's not, it's not that we create the deficit. We convince them that it already exists. Right. You know, so your, your people might come in and they have no idea that this is a problem. So you, you have to convince them this is a problem. You have to show them why this is a problem. And you know what? You're right. That could be a place where you use statistics. We can look around us and, and just general by general revelation, you see this is a problem. You read the newspaper, you see this is a problem. Those of you who parent, are parents, when you engage with your kids, you see this is a problem. Those of you who are married, you see this is a problem every day. Uh, those of you who work in such and such fields, you see this is a problem. You know, So you're just establishing the case that this is an issue, uh, not just assuming that they all agree it's an issue. They think their problem is whatever there is on their Facebook feed. But the real problem is what the text is actually addressing. So you've got to spend a couple minutes, I think, just kind of setting them up for that to help them see that this is real. This is a real issue and, and needs to be addressed. And sometimes it's easier said than done. And it can be hard work sometimes, but I think that's that's how you get them ready for the passage. Yeah, and then really the and, and the idea that you present too, and, and, and others have talked about this, I had Robinson, Don Snookian. But it's, I think it's because it's a timeless concept, is that of the subject and the complement. Can you explain that and why is that so important for the sustaining of that tension and the, and the power that's in the text? Right. Right. So, you know, my experience with subject and complement in seminaries is that it's really hard for students to pick up on exactly what that is, you know. Um, and it is a little hard to explain in those terms. Subject can be a grammatical subject, right? Like, um, you know, uh, trees, you know, trees is a grammatical subject, but that's not what Hannah Robinson is talking about. Uh, trees are good for us. That's the subject. Then the compliment answers it. Why are they good for us? Or how are they good for us? Mm -hmm. You know, or why should we try to save trees or whatever the, the, the thesis might be? So you go back to your early English composition classes where you had to write a paper, an essay, and you had a thesis statement. And your thesis statement can't just be, uh, you know, leadership in the church, you know, right? What about leadership in the church, right? So the subject is complemented by sort of an answer, what to do about it or what to think about it. So a good way to think about it is question and answer or perhaps problem and resolution or tension and resolution, right? There's an issue, there's a difficulty, there's a deficit, there's a problem, and it doesn't always have to be negative. It, it could just be, uh, it, it could just be a, a, a factor of our need for God's grace, but not always from sin. You know, it could just be, hey, a lot of us are feeling hopeless these days. Uh, these things happen, and we're wondering where's the firmness of our hope. You know, but it, does, it doesn't have to start out with, here's how all of you are sinners. It's not always that. But the subject and complement is how you articulate that main idea, that central thrust of the passage. And I like to think of it in terms of either a question and an answer or a problem and a solution, because that's how you discover the tension, right? If I yeah. can set up the subject in a question kind of way, 
then the sermon is going to move us toward that answer. Um, or if I can set it up as a problem, the sermon is going to move us toward a solution. You know, that, that sort of thinking allows me to now all of my things, all the things that I say about a passage are going to be arrows pointing in that one direction rather than a shotgun approach. Right. Yeah. And the, and the resolution requires some, it requires some level of precision. And like, I'll give you an example of this because, and, and I'd love for you to comment on this because this annoys me to no end. The amount of times I've sat in a sermon and, you know, I'll hear the guy preach and he he presents a question like, or he'll present a problem like, hey, we, we have all this, you know, we have this coronavirus and it's terrible and everybody's angry and bummed out. And then his, his solution is like, you know, he look, reads a passage and he says, the answer is faith. We got to have more faith. And like everybody goes, and then he gets all riled up, like, yeah, you know, everybody's like, yeah, we got to have more faith. And, and, and then, and then like you walk out of there and everyone's like, got to have more faith. And it's like, okay, well, but I, that's, that's just so anemic to me. Like it doesn't like everybody, like I could have, I could have come up with that on my own, you know, before I even came to church. So like, how do I get down to more levels of specificity and precision that, that actually don't, I mean, duh, yeah, you're supposed to have more faith, but what does that even look like and, and why and how and how can that really be a solution to the problem that we have, right? Right. Well, so the one, one there's a few questions that I ask preachers to ask themselves as they're preparing, you know, moving from a text and thinking about moving into a sermon. And one of the questions I, that I like students to ask is uh, how how does this passage uniquely drive this truth home? So, so in other words, if you have a, a big idea, a thesis statement, and you can easily swap texts and keep the statement the same, you're probably, it's probably still not specific enough. It's probably still too broad. You know, yeah. um, you, you want to ask how does, okay, this truth might be found in other places, but how does this passage drive the truth home? You know, there, there are many passages that talk about how God is a provider. But how does Psalm 23 specifically talk about that? Right? There are many passages we can turn to where, where God satisfies us. But how does Psalm 23? Well, it escalates it, doesn't it? You know, it's, it starts off with the serene image. It starts off by telling you the thesis statement. Outside of God's lordship, you'll always want. But positively, if the Lord is your shepherd, you, you will have no want. And then it escalates it. I mean, what about in the presence of enemies persecuting me still? You know, what about the shadow of death even through that? What about forever? Right? And so you can see how Psalm 23 delivers it in a certain way, and that's going to affect how you craft that, that central statement so you can just easily swap texts. So I agree with you. I think we, we want to get as specific as possible so people can really get a grasp, A, on what the text is actually saying, and B, how does profits me for good work, right? Still stuck in a fog of ambiguity. I don't know what to do when I go home. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. Well, and even like, um, even it, like what you pointed out, there's tension in Psalm 23. Like it starts off with the Lord's my shepherd. And it's almost like, even though I've tr- traveled through the valley, you know, even when, when I'm facing death, even when I have my enemies with me there. And, and as opposed to, again, like you sit there and, you know, they read it at a funeral and it's like, well, yeah, we all kind of know this, that the Lord's my shepherd. And it's like, who cares? Right. I mean, that's as opposed right. to like, no, there's real situations where you're not going to actually believe this, but even in those situations, it's still true. That's right. 
That's right. So then um, going back to tension, because I, I, I really think that that's one of the main things that I, uh, the concepts that I took away, um, you know, from your book. And, and there's so much in there, I think, that's so helpful. But it's like you give an example like you talked about the uh, the ice cream sundae. And it's like, you can say, well, you know, if you had the ice cream, which is really great, and like the chocolate sauce and the whipped cream is really great. And then, oh, the last part's, oh, we just sprinkle some nuts on there. And it's like, well, that's kind of anticlimactic. It's like, well, who cares? I mean, that's just, compared to all the other stuff, that's not very good. But then you can, you contrast that with a different way of, of saying it, where you say, hey, look, it's not complete until it has this other texture. Like, explain what you meant by that. Right. Right, so... There, what I'm what I'm getting at is you can have really good content, really good points that are faithful to the text, and it's all there, right? But if you don't link the pieces together so that your audience understands why we need to get to the next point. So a lot, a lot of preachers, right, they'll be like, I have five points this morning. First of all, I think that's not the greatest pretension to just tell them how many points you have, right? Like imagine watching a movie and the director walks out first is like this is going to have 16 scenes like nobody cares just take me from one scene to the next and no one's going to care how many points you have mm. and the way to do that is to see how your points create an argument how they link together what how does one point lead to the next point and so the ice cream analogy was i mean it's kind of silly or whatever but it's like if you explain why now that we have the ice cream and the syrups and the fruit why we still need one more ingredient. You're missing something salty. You're missing something crunchy. It's going to have no texture to it. So for that final topping, we're going to turn to crushed nuts. And something as simple as putting together a sundae, you can, you can help the person you're talking to understand why we still have, you know, we're, we're not, uh, we don't have more sermon to go because there's still 10 minutes on the clock. Like it's not about the time, right? It's mm -hmm. about getting to the point. And helping them understand that, okay, let's say in Paul, he's got an argument here, and he's kind of, it's kind of a four-step argument. He's going to go here, then he's going to go here, and then he's going to go there, and then boom, the final point. So the key thing there is the transitions. Mm -hmm. And in your transitions, you don't want to just say, okay, you know, we've been taught to review and preview as our transitions. Okay, we've been in point one, we've seen point two, now we have point three. Look at the text with me. That's boring. Mm -hmm. we, what you want to say is, now we've seen this truth, mm -hmm. and I think Paul has convinced us, if you're with me, Paul has convinced us of this, but on the heels of those two things, what about this? Yeah. So what, what about this objection? Uh, and so uh, a, a hypophora is a, is a rhetorical tool to use. It. Well, a lot of us use it without knowing what it's called, but it's where you anticipate a question. Like when you're talking to somebody and goes, um, you know, uh, is, is it hot in Arizona? Yes. Is, is it sometimes debilitatingly hot? Yes. But I still love living here because A, B, and C. Mm. Right? So you're imagining a question and then answering it. Uh, another way to do it would be prolepsis, which is imagining an objection. And you hear preachers do this all the time. It's not you know, too inventive or new, where the preacher says, now at this point, you might be thinking, yeah, that sounds cool in Paul's day, but if Paul lived in my day and experienced what I experienced, he'd have to grapple with this other truth. And I'm glad you're thinking that because that's exactly where Paul goes next. Boom. Now you answer the objection with the next point. 
Yeah, you're premeditating. You're premeditating what the person's thinking in advance. And they, and that's when I think they come up to you afterwards, like, Hey, how did you know, you know, you, you've been reading my mail or whatever, like you read my mind. Cause you took the time to think maybe even of the objections that the person might have or the blanks that still need to be filled in, so to speak. Right. But, but here, here's the trick. I didn't sit in my office thinking, huh, I wonder what objections they might come up with. What I did was I looked at the next point, the next chunk of verses. And then I asked myself, what objection is this answering? Mm-hmm. See, and and and, to, and the reason why I do that is because I, all I'm doing is trying to get them to see why Paul or whomever is is spending more ink on the next chunk. It, it's not like he just has to get to the end of the parchment. There's a reason why verses four through six are coming next, and I need to discover why those are there, and then turn that into an objection or a question or or some way to transition besides just we were in point one and two and now three is coming you know we we want them to help them understand how this is an organic argument or narrative or you know whatever kind of scripture landscape we're in to help them see why you know there's a reason why this next piece is there let me help you see why you need to hang in with me to see it yeah so i mean then and and again this is kind of like a uh, it, it goes along with what you're saying, but like we, the, the average church, you know, you get a bulletin and it's got a blank or it's got a piece of like paper with like three lines, blank lines. And, and, you know, when I went through seminary, like Snookian, Dr. Snookian always say, Hey, you know, that just kind of blows everything because the, as soon as the person gets the last blank, they're going to like basically tune you out. I mean, how do we balance like you know, wanting people to remember stuff or like the note taker or whatever. Cause I like, I never did that. I just, cause part of it was just like, I didn't have my last point sometimes till like Friday. And I didn't want to put the pressure on the people to my admin people to like print stuff in, on Saturday. So I just put like a blank sheet of paper and then I had slides, whatever else. But I mean, like, what do you think about that whole practice that we have of this kind of three point fill in the blank? You know, what, how does that affect the issue of tension and, and the things that we're trying to do? Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, the, the, the folks that are listening to this, I, I, I don't mean this is any offense or anything like that. It's just, I think it is uh, a sort of a lazy tactic. Okay? It, it's like, first of all, when, when your sermon doesn't have a singular thrust and it's kind of all over the place, yeah, it, uh, some kind of handout is going to help because no one knows where you're going. They could <laughs> never have predicted your next point. Their teeth is fair, you know? And right. so to track with you, I need some kind of fill-in-the-blank or power, PowerPoint slides or something because mm. without that, it, it's really hard to track with you. So for me, I think rather than adjusting the audience to my lack of ability to have a singular thread through my sermon mm. and maintain tension— I'd rather work on that so that they don't need a handout. I'd rather work on that so they don't need, you know, 50 PowerPoint slides to track with what I'm saying, because it's not a deluge of information. PowerPoint is really helpful and handouts are really helpful when you're in an academic setting and the teacher has 50 minutes to communicate to you a humongous chunk of church history or like five chapters of a systematic theology volume. Like that's a lot of information that's got to come at you fast. You're going to take notes really fast and then go home and download it on your own. The the purpose of that lecture 
is to give you get hit hard and fast, and then you download go download it on your own. Mm-hmm. And if you can't write fast enough, record it, right, and listen to it later. And sometimes we import those tactics into the church. And I'm saying, well, no, no, no. I don't want to jump around into 15 different texts. I have a paragraph in front of me. I announce we're going to look at this passage. We're going to say in this passage. I might have a cross-reference here or there, but I try to limit those so that our attention can just stay on what Mark is doing in this particular passage, uh, for instance. And if we can do that, I think we'll discover we need less helps, less visuals and things like that. And, and we, you'll hear often, Tim, you'll hear people say, well, it's for the visual learners. No, it's not. You know, because what about the tactile learners? Are you going to have a five-minute timeout where we all build a project together? You know, <laughs> right. we, we all, we all, there's, there's something to, you know, that aspect of how, how we learn, but it's overblown. Right. I, I think people can still listen to Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech and your your certain learners aren't gonna go like, Man, I, I, I checked out a couple sentences in. He just didn't have any charts. There weren't any pictures. <laughs> like it's engaging because Martin Luther King is the man. You know what I mean? Like rhetorically. Yeah. Um and, and we can develop our ability to engage the listeners and that's on us rather than sort of you know, trying to su- supplement it with uh, fill in the blank, which is sort of one of the feedback I get sometimes when, when people are in churches in those situations that it's kind of, it's like a rope exercise, right? Like you're just waiting to fill in this blank mm-hmm. rather than really engaging with what the text is saying. You're just kind of waiting for the preacher to say the magic words so you can write it down. And it's easy, I think, for our minds to slip into that mode. And for me, I'd, I'd rather go about it a different way. Yeah, and it's, well, and by the way, this is like personal therapy for me because like I I felt, I felt like guilty because I going, you know, if I was, if I was better at, you know, more organized with my thoughts or whatever, or you know what I mean? Like if I, cause I, I really, I struggled to get to the, I mean, I want to get to the text, but then I go, well, there's no real, like I, I could do the the blanks or whatever else, but there's more, to me, it was just more than that. And I always felt just kind of like, um, subpar sometimes because I didn't have, you know, and even when I go guest preach and like, Oh, p- turn in your slides or whatever. And I'm going, Oh, you know, I gotta, I gotta right. figure right. that out. And it's like, but what if, but what if something like really, cause, because like, you know, some of the guys that I've really, you know, like for example, Bill Hybels, um, you know, and, and I hate to have to like qualify this, but I know that Bill Hybels has had his share of problems and people who go, Oh, you know, whatever, but you can't take away the fact that he is a fantastic communicator. And I remember years and years ago at a, at a Bill Hybels, uh, at a Willow Creek conference, he said in a kind of a smaller group of people, he said he was hanging out with Bono from U2 and, and Bono said to him, the number one thing that people are looking for for me when I go out on stage is energy. And like, I never forgot that. And then, and it was kind of like, um, and then I listened to this other guy, uh, talk show host, Dennis Prager, who's been on the years for, uh, air for like 30 years or 40 years. I mean, it's just the guy's been on forever. And his number one thing is he says more than anything else, you know, be interesting. And it's like, you know, I know we have to believe me, that's not to take away from the the depth and everything we've been talking about. But at some point, it's like, you've got to be able to have, you got to be able to grab people, you know, there's the art part of it. And and so I guess the question I want to ask you about that, because you, you alluded to it before, is, can that be 
Um, is that just purely raw talent or can the ability to really grab people and, and you know, you don't need all that ancillary stuff. Can it be learned? Can it be taught? Can it be developed? Yeah, I think a lot of it can be developed and learned. Some aspects of it are harder to learn than others. Uh, and so you know, one, of the, one of the first times I taught homiletics was at Moody Bible Institute. And I remember then bringing in a C.S. Lewis book. And I, I actually did this in class. I'm like, all right, we're all going to take turns reading a page of, of, it was like one of the Narnia books. And I just briefly described my children. You're tucking in, you know, my children are, are in bed and you're babysitting this night and it's your job to tuck them in and it, it's story time and you got to engage them, right? You, you got to read it in a way mm. that is engaging. And so I had them just read a text, uh, C.S. Lewis text. And I'm like, you know, if there's action happening, put it, put it on an acting voice. If there's something sad, make it feel sad in your voice. And it, I struggle with that though, too, because I'm like, you know, I'm not trying to do acting classes. It's just that I know you love God's word. And I know you understand that sometimes God's word is talking about something really deep and heavy and lamentable. And sometimes it's talking about something that is pointing us to hope and this assurance that we have. And we shouldn't preach that with, with a flatness like we don't believe it. Mm. And so, you know, sometimes it just takes a little practice to do it, to allow your voice to match what you do know and what you do believe. And some of it is nervousness. You know, our, our voices tend to flatten when we're nervous, and some of that comes out through time. But you do have to, uh, you have to work on it. But I think what, what is easier to work on is just the energy of the outline itself. Hmm. I mean, you could be super energetic and charismatic, but if your outline is all over the place, one point doesn't really lead to the next. You don't really have a, a goal. It's like when you watch a movie and you it's star-studded cast, you can't blame it on the acting and the movie is terrible. Well, because the story is terrible or because the scenes didn't lead one into the next. or you don't know why that character was even in the story. And you might be reading a book and feel the same way. Like, man, this is a really good author, but this particular book... It's not great. It just is not engaging. And so if you can think about uh, how to organize your material in a way that if you gave the manuscript to somebody else and they read it, it would still have some engaging aspect to it just because of the way it's laid out. It starts with a question. It starts answering it. And then, oh, what about this objection? And then it moves. You know, there's there's something happening here that I really want to listen to. Uh which you can, if you're kind of a low energy person, you can be greatly helped still by just the way you outline the sermon. See, I love that because what you just said to me was like amazing because you said you don't have to be this hyper charismatic off the chart, dramatic person. If you're, if you're, your outline, if it's done right, the, the force, the flow, the arc of your sermon will build and bring and should naturally have energy built into it. And then conversely, you could be the most energetic person in the world. But if what you're saying is just not coherent, it, it you're still going to fail at really engaging the person. I mean, like, that's a powerful point. Yeah, and it, it takes practice. It takes hard work. You might want to recruit some proofreaders at your church, say, hey, uh, you know, they're, they're committed on Friday night or Saturday morning to just look at your outline and just go, you know, I, I don't get this point doesn't make sense to me. You know, there's ways to go about it to, to get some help. 
Um, but it, it takes work, it takes practice, but over time, it's gonna feel really difficult at first, especially if you're used to just explain a verse, read a verse, explain a verse, you know, that's so simple. Uh, but over time, it'll get easier for you. And actually, I think it saves time on the sermon work because I'm gonna prepare my sermon in less time than the preacher that is slavishly going after illustrations and applications mm. and that killer closer, you know, mm. where for me, I'm like, those, when they come to me, great, I use them. But, but I'm not sitting there hours on end. I used to. I mean, I used to be up really late Saturday nights. <laughs> and what's keeping me up, it's not, it's not the certain, it's not, I understand the text. I know what I'm supposed to say about it. I just don't have that killer opener. I don't have that, that home run illustration. I've got to find it. And so I'm reading stories and thinking about my life and what I experienced this week. Can I work that in? Can I wedge that in? And this is simpler, but it's a harder work up front. Just to revisit those homiletic texts. Sanukian is a really good one, biblical invitation to preaching. Books like that that help you understand, oh, this is how I arrange the material. Like once I have the material and it's faithful, great. Now the second half is not where you just dial it in. This is where you think about how to put things in an order that is engaging. Well, and certainly your book, um, and, and, you know, again, I want people to, to go out and get this, to get your book, because I think it's got so much stuff, and you do incorporate, you know, stuff that you've learned over the years that, that we've all learned in seminary, but you, you, you do add so much to it. Again, preaching to be heard, and we'll talk about it more in a few minutes, but I think that the other part about your book, I think that's really helpful, is the whole the whole way that you you teach or talk about how to outline in a way that maybe can save some time and just maybe a structure to help help us think through passages better. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, really, here's where I took Haddad Robinson's four outlines and his classic book, Biblical Preaching. He's got four outlines in there. Uh, but again, I just realized that many of us students struggled with how to do those outlines. So I wanted to just, hey, here's four templates, four patterns that you can kind of follow. And uh, they're just basically a few different ways to do tension, right? Mm. You can start with a question, and little by little, as you move through the passage, you end up getting to the answer somewhere toward the end of the passage, so that would be called an inductive approach, right? So you're, you're saying, hey, guys, here's this big question. Are you ready for Scripture to address it with me? Yes, you know, okay, let's go to Scripture. And it's unpacking step by step until finally at the end, the light bulb comes on. I'm like, oh, that's it. The opposite way to do it, because inevitably preachers are going to find a passage. Psalm 23 does it, right? The, the, the question and answer is kind of right there up front. What is the solution to your, to your longings? What is the solution to your wants? Well, how do you get satisfaction, real uh, satisfaction? Well, when the Lord shepherds you, there's the answer. But you still have the whole rest of the chapter to go, right? And so rather than thinking, well, the, answer, the question's answered, I guess there's no tension. You want to start thinking about what follow-up questions flow from the fact that there, that answer still creates tension. Mm. Uh, and so I, I'm not, this is not original with me. A couple other authors have, have, have made the, the comparison. But when I was a kid, uh, my dad used to watch uh, this show called Columbo. And he was a detective. 
always coming on a crime scene. It was always a murder. What was different about this show was you spend like the first 15 minutes of the show. It was about an hour long, I think. The first 15, sometimes 20 minutes, there's no Columbo in the show. All you see is the setup to the murder. And you see how the murderer did it. You see their motive. You see uh, how they hid the evidence, all of that. So there's your answer. It's, you know, who did the murder? Well, there you go. They, they just spent the whole first part of the show giving you the answer. This is the person that did it. And not only who did it, but how they did it and why they did it. So why watch the rest of the show? Because as the creators of the show said, it's not a how, it's not a who done it. It's a how catching. Mm. So Columbo's got to figure out how to prove that this person did it. And so that kind of sermon is in proving mode. So Psalm 23, uh, the Lord, when the Lord shepherds you, that's when you're full of satisfaction. Oh yeah. Well, I've been a Christian for 23 years and I still feel deeply depressed. Uh, my girlfriend just broke up with me and I feel like I'm down cold. You know, that's not enough to just tell me, well, the Lord is shepherd, pat me on the head and send me home. Like, let's get real. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad you're asking that. That's the, those are the kind of questions we have to grapple with. Let's let this Psalm walk us through what it looks like and then take us there. So you can still have tension, even though the answer is there because they don't agree with the answer or they have questions about that answer. It's not settled for them yet. And the text is going to settle it for them. And so there's a couple other patterns. We're going to have to get into all of them. But those are kind of the two basic ones. Start with a question, end up with the answer. Start with a question and answer. But the text is still going to, you're, you're going to go kind of into like lawyer mode, proving mm-hmm. and demonstrating that this is actually true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I remember thinking that like the the deductive or the, um, you know, giving all the answers at first, I was always afraid of that. But then I realized, no, if, if you get it out there first, it's kind of like the Colin Powell, you know, tell them what you're going to tell them and then tell them and tell them what you told them. But then what's so great about that is you, like you said, you go back around and you, you say, hey, this is why this is important. This is why the, this is how we get there. And in this situation, like you said, my girlfriend just broke up with me. You know, that's how this issue addresses that. And what I love about that too, again, this is where I feel like we're so deficient. We, we preach sermons to our, I, and I, I may be overstating this, but I feel like we tend to preach sermons to our preaching professors, to, to guys like you, as opposed to the men and the women in the seats. You know, I, and I, that kills me because I go, okay, that was a really nicely wrapped academic exercise. But like you said, getting into and actually thinking, who are the people that you're preaching to and why does it matter to them? Right. Yeah. I always have like this little voice in my head going, who cares? Mm-hmm. You know, who cares? You like that Bible nerd. But, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to think of the cross sections in my church and some of them are Bible nerds and you do have to, you know, give them, drop some little gems for them. Right. But, yep. but then there's the people in your church that have not only are they not seminary trained, they're not even, they didn't even grow up in church. They have no idea what a psalm is. They don't know where you are, mm. you know, and so you have to keep in mind uh, how to orient them to scripture. Uh, and I try to do that in a way that assumes the best in them. In, mm-hmm. o- in other words, there's a way to condescend and make people feel like you think they're dumb mm-hmm. and you don't want to do that. And so, um, one of the things I'll do is kind of use churchy words or big words, but then surround them with understandable words. So I just taught you, right? I just taught you that big word because I couched it in other words that you do know. Now you know it. I'm not saying that, but that's basically what I'm doing. 
But yeah, you have to be thinking about their biblical literacy level, and you have to be thinking about for all of them, regardless of their biblical literacy level, how this helps the guy that owns a business and uh, you know, the, the, one of his biggest clients is asking him to, uh, support something unbiblical, but if he doesn't do it, he loses the client and will probably have to fire half his staff. What does that guy do? You know, so that's where it helps to be a pastor in a church where you're preaching to the same people over time. Uh, because as you get to know the flock, you can close your eyes and imagine the cross sections of your church and going, what does this matter for this person? What does this matter for that person? Think of the junior high girl that's getting pressured to send texts to the boys, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just keep, keep, keep moving through the pews, so to speak, and, and think about how this is going to touch on them. And if you imagine them sitting there like disengaged, then you need to think about, okay, how do I ask a question that this next verse is going to make them go, yeah, I need that. You know that that kind of thing. Yeah, that and that's even that alone is just it's so important that we take the time to do that. You know, I the the bummer with a conversation like this is like I could go, we could keep talking for like two more hours about this stuff because there's some I have questions that I'm not even able to get to. But what I want to do is is I want to ask you, you know, because you're a professor at Trinity, you also you also are a senior pastor, right? You still preach regularly, like you practice, that's right? right? That's right. Yep. Yeah, that's really that's really important because you're not just like in the ivory tower telling us how to do it. You're wrestling with this week in and week out. Yeah. In fact, I, when uh, when when Trinity came calling, so to speak, uh, you know, one of the things I told them was, you know, I'll come, but I have to be able to stay in the church. Mm-hmm. We've got to work it out somehow. Uh, and what I told the church was. If push comes to shove and I've got to pick one, I'm a church guy, you know? Mm-hmm. So this is a way for us to expand the ministry of our church into the seminary, not the other way around. Uh, so I, I, have my, I have the heart of a pastor, the calling of a pastor. And I think actually what, what Trinity told me was, that's great. We want, we want our professors and, and faculty engaged, you know, in the trenches uh, so that they can connect with students on that level as well. So it's it's been a joy to, to be able to draw on my experiences here. Yeah. Well, and so again, you wrote a book, Preaching to Be Heard, Delivering Sermons That Command Attention. I bought it off of Amazon. Very simple to do. Um, you also, what I really like that you do at the end is you give a bunch of exercises. I mean, it almost has like a workbook section where you could take passages and you you kind of you know, you walk through how to how to outline these passages in a way that you suggest. I found that that was that was really helpful. You know, right? Yeah, I, I hope it, I hope it does help uh, for those of you listening. You think about getting the book. You know, I encourage you to try to do some of those exercises, and hopefully, it just kind of work some muscles that maybe you worked in the past, but you know, it's, it's experienced some atrophy, and it's been a while, and so. Uh, take your time moving through it and maybe find someone to do it with and say, hey, what did you get for this answer? What did you get for this? And and that kind of thing. So uh, hopefully it, it's it's helpful for pastors out there. Yeah. And then I, I guess my last question to you is, is I know Trinity um, and I know like with COVID, people have been like, you know, um, you know, like my own kid is not going to college right now and everyone's at home and schools are. 
But what do, and I just, I don't, cause I don't even know this. Does Trinity have an online option? Like if, if there's a guy going, man, I really like uh, Dr. O'Neill. I really like what he was saying. I, I, I mean, I bought the book, but what if they wanted, could they take a class with you? How would that, could they do something online with you? How, do you guys have options like that? Well, actually right now would be a good time to do that because because of this COVID situation, right? So we've always had kind of online options, but this has sort of forced the situation where pretty much every class, not every single class, but most classes are going to have some kind of Zoom component where you can Zoom in. My classes, particularly for me, uh, this semester are most likely going to be all Zoom. Uh, some teachers are going to be like ha have some students in person in, in a physical classroom and then other students. Uh, but I'm opting for just putting it all on Zoom so that we're all sitting at the table on even ground, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, with Zoom, you can kind of see each other uh, and it's uh, it's going to be a lot of discussion and, and back and forth and doing exercises together, working with text together uh, and that kind of thing. And, and you'll also get a chance to preach uh, in a lab, I put that in quotes because we're just going to do it on Zoom, you know, and it's awkward for the students to preach on Zoom, but that's what a lot of us are doing these days, right? Like we open this conversation talking about what the, what is it like to preach into a camera? Well, we're going to learn together because it's the mode we're in, you know, so oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Trinity has a lot of options like that and uh, you can always, you know, uh, someone who's interested can, you know, make, make a phone call to the registrar's office and, and just ask about particular classes to see if they're able to join it. No, it's, that's fantastic. Hey, listen, I, I, this was, um, again, I were, there was so much more that we could talk about. I, I think just, Hey, people got to go out and get your book. And, and really like what gets me excited is, is thinking about how we've got to train the next generation, you know, formal training in seminary, but I know more and more that's even shifting to church based and, and, you know, we've got to be training up, um, the, the next generation of powerful communicators that can weed through I mean, look, TikTok and Instagram and, you know, YouTube uh, little videos as, as like as effective and great as they are in terms of like, whoa, that was really funny or whatever. It's it's just sugar, man. It burns fast. It tastes good, but it burns fast. And and it's not going to actually bring people what they need. So we have to have a renewed confidence. And, um, you know, and I would say that there is a tradition that we have that that there is a tradition that we have in the evangelical free church of being people of the word. We, you know, where stands it written? And, and like, that's not going to go away for us. And so we need um, guys like you, um, Lucas, to be able to, to help teach and train. So I, I really hope that people, um, you know, the people will, will reach out, that they'll grab your book. And uh, so do you have any, as you look ahead forward, what do you hope to see happen in the future regarding the whole field of preaching? Yeah, with with, the, with preaching, I'm hoping that we can, uh, like you just talked about, uh, continue to uphold the truth that God's word is powerful. God's word is what's powerful for change, not my top talking points or my illustrations, uh, but also to recover the ancient principles of just good rhetoric, you know, mm -hmm. good communication and and not to be overly dependent on tech, but more dependent on what it's like to be a good communicator and to put in some work after we've done the exegesis, to put in some work to think about how to roll this out in an engaging way that remains faithful to the text, to get people's attention on the text 
and kind of get myself out of the way, I've got to think about how to do that and it takes some work. So let's let's uh, practice, and I'm looking to see more preachers continue to grow in that. Awesome, man. Well, hey, I appreciate it, and uh, I, you know, thanks so much. And I know so many people are going to be just blessed and uh, and totally fired up by everything you had to say. So God bless you. Thanks for being here today. It was, it was a pleasure, man. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. All right, brother. Take care.